This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coverline. If you're looking for a date, you might head out to a bar, or you might go to your computer. On our show today is Dr. Kim McGann, Associate Professor of Sociology at Nazareth College, and she's going to talk to us about online dating. When I think of online dating, I think of kind of the old school, I'm a loser and can't meet anybody and I'll go online and do the lonely heart bit. Not that I have any experience in that, but that's kind of what comes to mind. Is that very inaccurate, as I presume? It actually depends on um, at what point in time you have that attitude. So online dating was, for a very long time, something that was um, seen as the realm of the desperate. So it had a lot of what we would call stigma to it. So really, Match.com, which is the biggest online dating site um, in the country, that was founded in 1995. So um, happy 20 years to Match.com. Yeah. Uh, if you looked, there was a really good, uh, the Pew Internet Research Project did a poll in 2005. And sure enough, they found that about 60% of people were a little bit hesitant about the idea um, of online dating. And that has actually switched quite a bit. Now, a majority of people think that it's a, that it's a good way to meet somebody as opposed to kind of having the stigma. And there's been some other research that has just shown that overall, there's been this cultural shift from like, oh my God, I can't believe you're going to do that, um, to like, oh, yeah, hey, where'd you meet your husband? Where'd you meet your girlfriend? Oh, I, I met them online. So so you're not at all incorrect in sort of saying, hey, I have this idea of it as something that, you know, is kind of where desperate people go. But that's definitely something that has changed over time. So you and I are a little bit older, but if you ask someone who's 20 or 25, they're going to be much less likely to say that it's something that's unusual or kind of for desperate people because they've also grown up with that. So do you think that's uh, doing in part because of the way our connection to technology has changed. Absolutely. Computers have become much more mobile. Everyone is connected to their phone now, so it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I certainly think that that's part of it, is that we're much more accepting of the internet and technological connectivity um, beyond a telephone that has a cord into the wall as sort of being part of our daily lives. You Back can even, in the days, you had to talk to the mom before you could talk to her. That's <laughs> right. You had to call the house and you might actually get somebody else that you had to talk to. And now you don't even have to wait to get the person on the phone. So, I mean, think about how many of us carry our phones around with us. And they're literally on us, you know, in our pockets. People sleep with them on their bedside tables, and we're rarely without them. So right. a sense of just having, you know, sort of this online connectivity as, as part of our lives is, is certainly a big part of that. But I would also argue that one of the reasons that online dating, that the attitude, general attitudes towards online dating has shifted is that online dating is actually not really that different from more broadly socially accepted ways of meeting people. Online dating is basically fulfilling the same function, just in a slightly different way. And so if you think about the ways that people commonly meet their partners, a lot of times people meet because they have some kind of a shared interest, right? So, oh, hey, um, you like Ultimate Frisbee, and I like Ultimate Frisbee, and we join the the team at RIT, and and that's how we met. That's how we meet, Um, Or just being at college together, right, is a kind of shared common interest. A lot of relationships start during that time. You have now a new, fresh face. You're out of high school. 
and now you've got this new bunch. One way that people meet that we we don't think of as being the realm of the desperate is actually blind dates where you're set up by someone. So, you know, if I'm looking for somebody to meet, you might say, oh, Kim, you know what? You're a sociologist. Uh, and, and you, you whatever, you have dogs and you like Ultimate Frisbee. My friend Greg also plays on, you know, this community Ultimate Frisbee team. I think the two of you would get along. And so you might pass information one way or the other and Greg might call me or text me or I might get in touch with him. And right. technically, I'm going out with a stranger that I only know some basic demographic information about. That's the same as what happens online where I say, oh, look, this happy Greg 42, <laughs> this Match.com user says that he was a social major and he likes Ultimate Frisbee. And so maybe I'll send him a message. Right. If you think about it, it's functionally equivalent to a blind date or getting set up with somebody through weak ties. It's fulfilling a necessary social function. People want to get together, and we need a way to do that. And so right. it's a convenient way to facilitate that process. Well, it would seem like also that you know when you have your friend trying to match you up because you're the one single person left in a group, there seems to be this kind of outward pressure of, well, this would work, because we think that they're good for you, so, so they need to be good for you. Whereas the online dating, well, you know, I'll do it. The computer could still be wrong. Yes, although remember, too, that while people are doing their searches online and sort of their selecting who to write to or who to write back with, but they're still sharing that information with their friends. So, you know, if, if I get an email from, you know, I'm at Happy Greg 42, right, either before I decide if I want to write back to him or if I do decide I'm going to write back and we've set up a date, I'm now going to use that same technology to shop his profile around to all of my friends and say, hey, what do you think of Greg over here? Step one, look the guy up on Facebook. Yeah, and, and actually that's another thing that people not do. If you can figure out who they actually are, you can Facebook quote unquote stalk them. I mean, there's right, all kinds right. of ways that you can kind of get background information. But again, I would argue that functionally that's the same as sort of asking lots of people like, hey, I'm going out with Greg. Do you know him? Oh, yeah, I know Greg. I used to play with him. I mean, we we want to have the same kind of information about people. We're just getting it in a different way. And it's it's not that that's not insignificant and not that there aren't some unique things about online dating that change how dating works, but it's not as crazy different as we, I think we sometimes perceive it to be because it's happening in this online space. What are some of the differences? What makes it different than us asking my friend? It's like, is, is Craig really that cool? Or? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple things that, that make it different. One is that online dating vastly expands your pool of potential dating partners. Think about the time and effort that would go into identifying a hundred people that might meet whatever your kind of basic criteria are. So we're talking, I'd like to meet someone within a certain age range, within a certain geographic area, who have a certain number of either hobbies or sort of um, life desire. You know, they want to get married, they want to have kids, they like dogs, and they like ultimate Frisbee. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of base, those basic set of parameters. If I wanted to try to find 100 people who had that and I couldn't use online dating, that would take me a long time, right? right. Even, you know, I'm, even if I'm asking everybody I know and trying to come up with that many people or even just to find out if people like that existed, you know, how many of those people are there would take forever. I can go do this in a super duper easy fashion in an online dating site. So I can go through and I can select for what kind of 
traits or quote-unquote criteria I might like or I might value with someone. And then I can, I mean, it's it's not that different from going to the library and doing, you know, research in a database looking for journal articles right. um, or going to Land's End and I'm looking for, you know, um, a partial cotton, loose fit, light blue shirt and I can type those criteria in and there are mm-hmm. my options. So it vastly expands the um, our range of potential dating partners or at least our perception of our range of potential dating partners, because just because there are a hundred Gregs out there does not mean that I can actually go on dates with all of them. It's almost like going shopping for a car. You kind of look online for the car and you say, yeah, I'll test drive that one. I, I, I don't want to test drive that one. And yeah. That one, the payments are way too high. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, you're, you're right. But in a little different from the car is that the car doesn't have to agree. Right. Right. Whereas <laughs> your, your, you know, your potential date does. It goes two ways. Say, yep. Oh, nope. Okay. Yep. Oh, nope. <laughs> yeah. And and so this um, this like vast increase in choice is both a, like a blessing and a curse. And so mm-hmm. in one sense and under some circumstances, it can be a real um, a real a very positive thing, especially in what we uh, what we refer to as thin dating markets. And that is not referring to the attractiveness of the people, but rather how many people are in a particular area um, for you to date that that have your basic demographic characteristics? You know, they're about my age. They're single. They either do or don't have kids or, you know, the sort of very, very basic stuff. 30 single living in Montana. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and so for places where there's just not a lot of single people around right. um, with these sort of shared basic demographics that you might like to have in common, Online dating can be a really handy way to a really useful way to find a partner because you can expand geographically, right? Your search for mm-hmm. people if there's not that many where you are. If the popu- literally the population density or just the population density of single folks right. um, isn't is not high. So in, that's what we call thin dating markets. Right. So I live in Avon, which is south of here. Mm-hmm. There's no one between the ages of 25 and 35 who's single. <laughs> I, I mean, it, you can you can go to the census um, if you go to census.gov and um, they have it's called the American Fact Finder and you can type in a zip code and it will give right. you all the basic demographic characteristics uh, of a particular community of that zip code. And one of the things it'll tell you is the average age and how many people are sing- what proportion of people are single. Right. So, you know, Livingston County is not where you want to be if you're <laughs> out and about. You know, if you're a, a at a college single person, it's not um, the good dating scene. No, but New York City, but you know, cities in general tend right. to be highly populated with with single folks. So, okay. if you live in living, you know, Livingston County, it's a great way to kind of expand and and meet people. If you live in New York City, you you have the opposite problem. So this is kind of the curse part where this much choice has a couple of pro- like can present a couple problems for us. So one of them is kind of psychological and I, I can't remember the name of the person who um, did this study. I think it was a psychologist, but there's this famous study about choice and jams. I don't know if you have you heard about this with yeah, the jam? A, if, if some if you have too many choices in jams, you don't know how to choose. It's like, give me grape, give me strawberry. I'm good. I can choose one. Correct. But organic grape and semi-sweet Kind of grape. And then chunky with pits. Okay, wait a minute. I just want grape jelly. Yes, absolutely. So there was a study, a famous study in a grocery store, and basically about six to nine jams was good. 
after that, if you gave people more choices, they they bought less. They were kind of overwhelmed. I was thinking this is the toothbrush problem. Whenever I go to buy a new toothbrush, I just stand there like in like how am I supposed to decide? Like (laughs) there should be three toothbrushes, like soft, medium, Medium, firm, firm. and maybe two color choices. Red, blue, just so I know (laughs) my wife's from mine. We're okay. (laughs) That's right. Um, So it turns out that this kind of psychological tendency to sort of be overwhelmed with too much choice and not be able to decide happens when we have too many potential dating partners. And so if I am someone who lives somewhere or is willing to search online for dating partners where there are a lot of people who meet my very basic demographic criteria, it becomes a lot harder to pick because you have a whole so many people to pick from. And that intersects with kind of a social part of why so much choice uh, can be a problem for us. And that has to do with how we perceive um, what we're getting in a partner versus what we have in our minds as kind of an ideal partner, what we'd like to have. Mm-hmm. So um, Aziz Ansari, the comedian, um, he has a he had a, has a new book out this year. It's called Modern Romance that he wrote right. with a sociologist, um, which is excellent. And uh, one of the terms he comes up with, which is very useful, is he says um, we have two ways of kind of thinking about choice, making choices. We can be what he calls maximizers, which is I'm going to do all this research and make sure that I make the best possible choice. So if you think about something like buying a new dryer, right? If you're a maximizer, you're going to go get consumer reports, you're going to read it thoroughly, you're going to shop around at Lowe's and Sears, and you're going to talk to your friends, and you're going to look at the warranties, and you're going to spend lots of time and effort to make sure that you get the best dryer. And then he has what he calls satisficers, which is satisfied and suffice put together. Mm-hmm. And that's basically when you go, this this is good enough and this will work. So I say, you know, I kind of got limited time and effort and I only care so much. And so I'm going to go to Lowe's. I'm going to talk to somebody. I've got my coupon and I'm going to buy this dryer and it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that concept works really well for online dating. <laughs> we have a tendency to be maximizers about our partners Mm -hmm. and online dating as a way of finding partners adds gasoline to that fire. The reason that we tend to be, even before online dating, that we tend to be maximizers has to do with actually the romantic feeling rules that we were talking about Mm -hmm. in the last podcast. You know, the idea that love should be timeless and it should always get better and it grows and your significant other is the center of your universe and it's always awesome and will be forever. That that creates a very unrealistic yardstick that we use, right, to measure our significant others against. Well, it turns out that we take that yardstick with us when we're even looking for our significant others in the first place. Do you look like someone that I could love forever, that it's always going to be awesome and that's going to be the center of my universe? So we already have a tendency to kind of be maximizers with our potential partners. But then you add online dating where you can, in theory, go, quote unquote, see all of your potentials. Right. And it encourages that. Like, I mean, I realize, you know, you, so so I'm sorry, you know, happy Greg 42, like you are about my age and you're attractive and gosh, you have a master's degree and but, you don't but want happy kids Greg either. Happy Greg 14 is an inch taller. But so. Happy <laughs> Greg 14, you know, also used to own a border collie. And so that's really, you know, and his sense of humor seems a little better, you know. But then there's, you know, Geeky Bob 47, who also has these other interests. <laughs> I feel so inadequate, and I'm not even on the market. <laughs> 
I'm Brian Carberline. You're listening to One Universe at a Time, and we're talking about online dating with Kim McGann. Thinking about all of this of, you know, high choices and people are being ultra picky, it seems like if I were doing online dating, I'd kind of have to fluff my resume, as it were, and, and make myself look better than I actually may be. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the things that um, that is interesting about online dating and that is different than meeting someone through a blind date or being set up or through a hobby that you like is that there's a different skill set in presenting yourself online than there is presenting yourself in person. Most online dating websites, um, in addition to asking you a lot of questions that you might check boxes to or write one or two word answers or select from a drop down list. Most of them also give you a space where you can say something about yourself. So you're mm-hmm. sort of crafting your, your own narrative. So I did a study um, of, with um, one of my classes uh, of online dating profiles and that text that people actually write about themselves, um, which was very interesting. And there was a couple kind of neat things that, that came up there that I think show some of the difficulty um, or obstacles that people have to overcome when they're, when they're trying to online date. So... The idea behind, you know, dating in general and online dating is a place like Match.com advertises itself as saying, you know, there are millions of single people and we will help you find your unique one in a million partner. So that's um, eHarmony's big thing that they have this matching algorithm and you're going to find that that one person out there. Interestingly, what winds up happening is that in an effort to kind of stand out, everybody tries to stand out in the same way. And so everybody winds up looking about the same. On Match.com profiles, the most uh, frequently used word is travel. (laughs) And the most frequently used phrase is down to earth, (laughs) um, which is is interesting. Um, And people are trying to kind of um, balance off sort of saying something about themselves that makes them sound unique and different, but also making sure that they don't sound like a desperate person. And there's also a gender component to this, um, where men who are writing profiles about themselves have to also be aware that they to not come across as sounding sort of threatening or scary. And so one of the things that we found in the profiles that we looked at from men is that there was tons of reference to this phrase over and over again, I'm just a regular guy, I'm just an average guy, I'm just a normal guy. And I think that that's a way, whether it's intentional or unintentional, of being like, I'm okay, you know, I'm safe. But that's a really interesting way to sort of market yourself or frame yourself. Right. I'm just like everybody else. Yeah, if, if you see some, you know, attractive, you know, man or woman, whoever you're looking for, you know, across the bar or whatever, the, the gathering that you're at, you're not gonna walk up to them and start talking to them and be like, so, you know, hi, you know, my name is Brian. I'm, I'm just regular, I'm just average. It was very interesting to sort of start out with that and then sort of try to differentiate themselves. And another really interesting thing that we found, and this was true for men and women, I, we kind of called this this I, sort of identity paradox, is that people wanted, presented themselves as having opposite characteristics and also wanted opposite characteristics in their partners. So a, a profile might read something like, my friends describe me as, you know, happy and outgoing and, you know, I can be the life of the party, but I also really like just a quiet night at home reading a book. And um, I, I love the idea of traveling and, you know, I'd like to go places, but I'm really proud of the fact that I have a home and there's nothing quite like a quiet weekend there. And, you know, going out to dinner is one of my favorite things to do 
do. I like exploring new tastes. But boy, do I make a mean homemade, you know, pasta. Right. And I feel like that's also a way of kind of covering your bases. Like I'm well rounded. But again, everybody winds up looking like everybody else because everybody likes to go out, but also likes to stay in. And everybody likes to travel, but also likes to stay home. There were proportionally few profiles that were really different, where you'd say, that person is not like the previous 10. Um, It's what actually we call the irrationality of rationality. Like you have this space that is designed to help people, you know, present themselves uniquely and you know, find unique partners. And the result of that is this very irrational thing, which is that everybody winds up looking even more like everybody else. It's kind of like the hipster effect. Everybody wants to be so different. They're all different in exactly the same way. Right. And then you're not a mile away now. Right. And then you're not different anymore. You're not different anymore. (laughs) So it seems like with, with, uh, you know, the, the risk of kind of having too much choice and not being able to make a good decision that an alternative would be something like Tinder, which is kind of swipe left or swipe right i don't know which way it's supposed to go but you know it's basically just a meetup and and you may just go out on a date you may spend time together you may not but there's not an expectation of a long commitment is that kind of the direction or am i misunderstanding what this is. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting. A couple just a few years ago, um, my students in the beginning of class they have a the first day they have a chance to ask me questions about whatever they want. And somebody this was a couple years ago said, "Do you use Tinder?" That was their question, and I had to say, um, "No," because I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do know now, <laughs> and I do actually know something sociological about this. Um, it is known as kind of the hook, you know, the hookup app. Right. I mean, the traditional idea is that you look at pictures and you swipe yes or no, and then if it's yes, you'll get a message of let's meet up, and it's like let's let's just have a one night and go on is how it's perceived anyway. It, yes, um, and that's certainly one of the things that can happen with it. It doesn't mean that everyone who is using Tinder is using it that way. And it, it has a, um, it's using your GPS. And so it's when you're out, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm swiping through, I'm, I'm logged in. So when I'm logged in, it means that I'm, I'm, I'm okay with other people looking at me. But if, if you and I are out and we're both um, using Tinder and both of us pop up, we both have to swipe yes in order for it to share that information. And that was a key development for Tinder that right. made it um, safer for women. Right. Right, which right. was different than Grindr, which was the same sex version of that for men, right. but didn't have that. Right. Um, so that was one of the things they had to figure out, like, how are we going to make Grindr for heterosexuals? It was like, you got to take this into consideration that, again, it's a different experience for men than it is for women. Right, exactly. Um, I would argue that while it certainly is known as and is often used as a way to to hook, you know, to meet someone to hook up with. Before that happens, it's a way to say, we're in the same geographic space right now, and I'm interested in meeting you in person. Right. Right. And I'm then, downtown in Rochester. You want to meet up at a coffee place. I'm across the street. Like, you're at that coffee shop, and I'm coming out of the little, and, oh, I see you there, right? Do you want to meet in person? And I would again argue that it's not so different from other things that might happen. So if... If you're at Spot Coffee and I'm at the Little, right, it's not out of the question that, like, I might, after my movie, stop down at Spot Coffee, see you across the room, and I don't know, maybe order you a large chocolate chip cookie because Mm -hmm. I, or whatever, do something to start an interaction. Tinder facilitates that. Like, I I wonder if I should go down there. Is there anybody around? Where should I go? It is different, but it's, again, I would argue that it's not 
crazy different than what might otherwise happen if you were in the same geographical location of potential partners. You might say, there's nobody I want to meet in this bar. Let's go across the street to that one. Again, I'm, I'm from an earlier generation, and I remember the whole thing of, okay, I think I like her. She's kind of cute. Oh, well, she's kind of looking my way. Okay, well, um, what do I do? Well, okay, I guess I'll go up and say hi, maybe. I, I, no, I'll go home and be alone again. <laughs> and it sounds like you just go, oh, I can switch. Oh, she said yes. Now I've already got an in. I, I know that at least you've agreed to talk to me, which yes. is one big step. And and actually, that that is absolutely true. And in that sense, I think that we underestimate Tinder for how it makes dating life easier for guys. Traditionally, right, guys have been the ones to do the approaching, right. uh, especially if you're someplace like a bar or, you know, a public gathering. That's changed a lot where women can do that now, too. But it's basically been the job of the guy to sort of, you know, even from the eighth grade dance, like walk across the floor to where all the girls are. And, Would you like to dance with me? And risking being shot down, which is hard. I mean, it, that's a, it's very hard. That's you, learn, difficult... you learn very quickly. It's like you're going to get shot down again. And Absolutely. Again and, again. I, and I think that that kind of gets missed in sort of conversations about dating and who has it harder and, and that kind of thing. And so you're absolutely right that just knowing, you know, it's it's the equivalent of me saying, you know, somebody saying to you, yeah, Brian, Kim, Kim thinks you're cute. Yeah. So then you're like, oh, if I go talk to her, she's she's probably going to talk to me back. So, I mean, right. I would argue that that's a good thing, especially because, again, I'm only going to be logged on to Tinder if I'm like, yeah, I'm willing to sort of have people look at my profile. And also, like, I have to agree that, like, oh, yeah, I'd be OK if that person came over. Right. We've already had one interaction and I've won that one. So so now I just have to go for the next one. Or you've gotten encouragement from I've that one. I've gotten encouragement from that one. No, yeah. a, a maybe is actually a really good thing for anyone yeah, so I, I do think in that sense, it, it can especially facilitate interactions among people who maybe have um, have less confidence to begin with. Right, yeah. right. And then what people choose to do after they, okay, we both, you know, we both swiped yes, and so we met at Spot Coffee. What people decide to do after that is, that's going to vary. So some people may decide to go hook up, and some people may not. Um, and we also should keep in mind that the term hooking up has a very, very flexible meaning that is in no way set when you ask people what it means. So right. hooking up can mean everything from like, we st- we stayed till Spot Coffee closed, you walked me to my car, and I got a kiss goodnight, to we went back to my place and we right. got it on. Right. Um, and that that really varies. So it is, when we say Tinder's used for hooking up, that should in no way be everybody who uses Tinder goes home and has sex with the person that they swiped right, yes to. Right, right. And that so, seems to be a common perception that people have from the right. outside looking at it. And that's related to just the perception of what hooking up means, which there's tons of evidence and research that it's it's a super duper loose term for a whole bunch of interesting reasons. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Koberline. In the next part, Kim McGann's going to ask me about a science topic. I've been listening to the Harry Potter series. Um, I read all the books when they when they came out, and I, uh, I've been, gotten into you know books on tape or CD or MP3s or whatever they are now. Um, and I've been so I've been listening to the Harry Potter books, and I'm I'm sadly almost at the end of again. But as I was um, listening yesterday and thinking about our podcast today, um, one of the things that I'm I was interested in asking you is whether there are any 
parallels to some of the cool magical things that happen in Harry Potter. So not whether I'm going to be able to do the cool magical things, but whether in the phys- our physical world, um, whether there's things that are similar. So one of the examples um, is that in, in Harry Potter, wizards who are not on the Hogwarts grounds can do what they call, what, what uh, the author calls apparate and disapparate. So basically they can pop out of existence in one location and they will pop into existence someplace else. Is there anything in the physical world that behaves in that way where it disappears from one location and then it instantly it this pops into existence in another location? It's interesting because you see you see ideas like this both in fantasy and science fiction. So in Harry Potter, it would be apparate and disapparate. In Star Trek, it would be teleportation, which is similar to the same thing. You dissolve in one way and then get beamed to another spot. And, you know, there's a lot of people that look at kind of the science of science fiction or the science of fantasy. And and the physical universe is strange enough that you can always find something at least similar to it. So, so apparition is of you know similar to teleportation, and there is something called quantum teleportation, and in some way, it seems like an object will disappear in one spot and appear in another spot, but it's also radically different. And with teleportation, for example, it is not the matter which is moving. So, so the idea with oh, wow. quantum teleportation is you have in quantum mechanics things can be connected. So, so you have this in what's called entanglement, mm-hmm. and and there's this kind of quantum connection between different objects. And so, one of the things you can do is, if you have entangled objects, you can take one and put it at one position, and one put it at some other distance away. And using that entanglement, you can convey the pattern from one to the other. So, what happens is, if you have an atom in a specific state at one side. By making a certain type of measurement, you can cause that result to come over to the other side through the entanglement. The atoms haven't transferred. There's still an atom on one spot. There's still another atom on the other spot. But you can kind of force the outcome. And they call it quantum teleportation, but it's not poofing from one side and appearing in the other side. Interesting. Wow, that's 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 neat to think that you know if you would. Ju- it reminds me of um. I was a kid. Well, I can't remember which kid's television show, but they were like these twins, and if you like bopped one on the head, it hurt the other one. It hurt the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it's kind of really. <laughs> yeah. Related to that. Wow, that that's neat. I, I just uh, listened to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and one of the things that, that happened in that was all year long, Hermione had been going to uh, two classes that met at the same point in time. And at the end of the book, I hope I'm not giving this away for anybody. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes. Um, so at the end of the book, uh, she and Harry have to use um, her special magical instrument that she was given, which was called a time turner, to go back three hours in time and change the course of events um, to to do some rescuing. And one of the things that that happens when when they go back in time Hermione keeps reminding Harry that they can't be seen by anybody or themselves because mm-hmm. that will screw up what in Star Trek would be the space-time continuum. Right. Um, but then at one point... Harry realizes that he does need to be seen by himself because the first time he did this three hours, he saw himself. Right. And so he, he realizes that in this instance, he's, he's sort of got to see him. And I thought that that was interesting because usually uh, most sort of science fiction or fantasy really sticks to the idea that like it 
totally screws up the universe if if you interfere, if you go back in time and interfere with something. And and so I'm just wondering in terms of time turning like that, is there anything that would tell me like, yes, you're going back to the same point in time or are there other options for how that might work? Right. Well, it's interesting because there are there are people who have worked on time travel. There are people who have studied how you might do time travel. Uh, the answer is probably not possible, but we can't 100% rule it out. But what's interesting is, you know, when you look at something like Harry Potter, when time travel is one of these things that's that's a major trope in science fiction and fantasy. And you're right, one of the popular uh, interpretations of time travel is that if you go back in time and change anything, then that will have horrible effects for the future, that kind of butterfly effect. If you, if you step on a butterfly in the wrong way, everything will change and, and your history will be destroyed. The, that idea of kind of rewriting the universe, as it were, if you go back in time. And what's interesting is that if you actually look at the physics of it, that's not one of the options. So, so there actually are, are two other options that, that people look at in terms of how time travel might work, if it were possible. One is known as the kind of multiverse idea. So in that sense, it stems from the idea that in quantum mechanics, when you make a measurement, there's an outcome. And there could be one outcome or another. And there's a multiverse idea of, well, when you make a quantum measurement, it splits your outcome so that you have now what was one universe, two universes, one in which one outcome occurred and one in which another outcome occurred. And this kind of multiverse idea would mean that if you went back in time, you would then split the universe into one universe in which you went back in time and one in which you didn't. So you could build a time machine, go back, prevent World War II, and then if you went forward, you'd go forward in the universe in which World War II didn't occur, not in your universe in which World War II did. So you could never get back to your original universe if you go back in time. So that's, that's one way of, of solving it. Another way is, of solving it is to require that all outcomes are self-consistent. This is sometimes phrased in terms of the grandfather paradox. If you could build a time machine, you could go back and prevent your grandfather from marrying your grandmother, and you'd never be born. Well, that means you couldn't go back in time and prevent them from, being, from marrying, and so now you're born, so you create this paradox. And usually it was, it was done as you go back and shoot your, your grandfather, or you go back and shoot yourself, something like that, because physicists love to do violent experiments, you know. You could have something where it's self-consistent. So, for example, you may go back in time and try and prevent Lincoln from being assassinated. And you go back in time, and you, you're almost there, and what happens is you distract a guard that allows Booth to shoot Lincoln. So you caused it to happen. Well, then that's self-consistent what with history is. You just didn't know that you went back in time to cause this. Right. And as long as everything's self-consistent, then there's no paradox. And so there could be something that constrains the universe, preventing you from creating a paradox. What's interesting in Harry Potter is that Harry Potter follows that one. Yeah. What you think may be happening isn't, in fact, what's happening. And you only it's only revealed after you see the full timeline. Uh, it's interesting that you, you see other ones like that. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure follows that same idea in which everything is self-consistent. 
this is now going to totally change how I watch my movies and my TV shows. <laughs> my, my friends already don't want to go to the movies with me or watch TV shows because I keep my sociology hat on and I analyze the gender and this class and how that's going. And now they're extra not going to want to go with me because I'm going to be, did you see that's the multiverse and the internal consistency there that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I do the same thing without watching just, movies and go, oh, no, I don't know. Kim, just eat your popcorn. <laughs> We've been talking with Dr. Kim McGann, Associate Professor of Sociology at Nazareth College, about online dating. Our program is produced by Mark Gillespie at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time. Mm